Welcome to the O'Reilly Design Podcast. I'm your host, Mary Tressler. In this episode, I sit down with investor, entrepreneur, and former VP of product, Ben Yoskovitz. We talk about using metrics to build products people want, the one metric that matters, and why it's important to have both hubris and humility when building a new product or company. Enjoy the show. Today, I'm here with Ben Yaskovitz, who is an investor, entrepreneur, and co-author of Lean Analytics. Ben is also teaching a class in June titled Product Strategy for Designers. Ben, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. I'd love for you to start off by talking a little bit about the Lean Startup methodology and Lean Analytics, and a little bit about what both are and why they work so well. Sure. So Lean Startup is a way of, I I would describe it um, for the audience as a way of building products, but also companies, startups, Mm -hmm. but also working in large companies. But if we think about products, building them in a faster, more iterative way, where you're interacting with the user or the customer more actively and frequently Mm -hmm. uh, so that you're able to ultimately reduce risk and waste. So I think many people will have had this experience where they have an idea, they think it's a great idea, they go out and build something and they invest heavily in that from a people perspective, from an hours, from a dollars, they launch it and nobody cares. (laughs) Or not enough people care, let's say. And you realize, wait a second, I've made all these mistakes through that, going through this exercise, going through the motions of building something. Um, Now what do I do? And so Lean Startup is designed to solve for that and get you to understand the risks in advance, de-risk those things. Um, A little bit of what we would call sort of applying some scientific methodology or the scientific method to building products. And Lean Analytics is a way of measuring your progress through that process. Um, and so, so I think you need sort of the combination of a little bit of the theory and, well, how do I go about building things and how do I understand what a, a problem is or how to validate it? How do I do customer interviews, this sort of tactical stuff? And then Lean Analytics is really about, well, how do I measure my progress through this so that I know I'm doing it um, successfully and not for the sake of just doing Lean Startup, Mm-hmm. But um, so that I can ultimately build something that my users or customers want. Awesome. So, so build, measure, learn is really at the heart of all of this. Could you talk a little bit about that and why maybe it's so difficult for people to to really embrace it? Yeah. So, build, measure, learn is at the core of lean startup, and it it when you see it visually, it's a little cycle. You know, build, measure, learn. It goes around and around, and it's an iterative cycle. And We'll say in, in lean startup parlance that you're trying to iterate through build, measure, learn as quickly as you possibly can, as frequently as you can to get to the ultimate um, success or perhaps you know the failure, but not late failure. And it seems so simple. And on paper, it looks so simple and elegant. And um, the reality is it's actually quite hard to execute. And, uh, and I think there's a number of reasons for that. It's um, the building part, for example, people tend to be pretty good at or understand, at least conceptually, I have to build something. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, a lot of people can get lost in the build part. Um, and, you know, traditional ways of building things, certainly if we think of waterfall, it's spec the whole thing out, decide exactly what we're going to build, build the whole thing and ship it. And so build, you know, in build measure learns a little bit different. It's what's the smallest thing I can build. And that that can be hard for people to understand, but not not too complicated, let's say. But in my experience, what we found is when you get to the measure part of the cycle, people are not entirely sure what they should be measuring. 
Um, and when is a big part of it. When should I measure certain numbers? What would the target for my certain number be? What's a benchmark that I should be aiming for for a certain metric? And so, um, you know, build, most people I think are okay with that part. They understand sort of experiments and, and they can wrap their brains around how to, to do that and build, you know, minimum viable products. Measure gets harder for people. And ultimately, if you sort of drop the ball when it comes to measuring things successfully, then you're not going to get the learning that you want out of it. Mm-hmm. And so, so then the cycle breaks down. And so, on, again, on paper, this thing looks so simple, but I think to execute it is, is really challenging. And then, so, you know, that's just at the tactical level. And then I think that there's other pressures on people around, well, what is an experiment? Am I even able to do that? You know, can I put something up that's not, you know, perfectly polished yet to test it? Who do I test it with? Um, you know, how will the company I work for think about those things? And so there's all kinds of sort of other pressures and challenges around let's call it the elegance and simplicity of that cycle. Mm. It, it it does sound simple, as you said, on, on surface, but uh, there are all sorts of constraints, I would imagine, that folks are, are being forced with. I'm curious to know, do you find uh, that folks have a hard time stopping the build piece of it? Or where do you see product teams stumbling along the way, in addition to what you just described? Yeah, so I think, I think it, we, we, I think everybody... I, I say everybody like I'm going to paint everybody <laughs> with the same brush, but but I think we we all appreciate that it is certainly getting easier to build stuff. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, you know, most of the risk for most companies is not can we build it. The risk is market risk. Will anybody pay for this thing, or does anybody care? And so, you know, from a from a very you know, can we build this piece of software or build this feature? You know, usually the answer is yes. Most of us are not building rockets to go uh, to Mars, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so that part is, I think, pretty straightforward. Where I think um, product teams do struggle is with, well, how much should I build? You know, when do I stop building and test? And, you know, historically, that hasn't been something that people have done. They've built, 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 sort of said, okay, this thing is, you know, and I'm air quoting, which nobody can see, (laughs) this thing is now done. Now we're going to, you know, do a grand reveal to the market and everybody's going to love it, right? If if we build it, they will come. And and that's not, you know, that can work. I'm not going to say that's impossible. Like you might get lucky. Um, But I think in build, that's where it gets challenging is just how much do I build and why am I building this? What am I actually testing? And, mm. and by extension, what am I going to measure to prove or disprove my test? So, so I think instead of building something and saying, well, I know this is right, therefore we're going to build it, um, you, you want to take the approach of this actually, I'm not sure if this is right. This is actually an experiment and it could, it could fail just as much as it could succeed. Mm-hmm. Um, and if something can't fail, then either you know so much already, and that's fantastic, you know, that's great for you. But I would say most people pretend like it can't fail in the hopes that it will just succeed. And so you have to build things like experiments and tests. And that's hard for people to, to sort of wrap their brains around, but also for companies culturally to understand that, hey, we may build something, and it, a feature, for example, and it may not do what we want it to do. Well, first of all, we better figure out what, what do we think it should do and what do we want it to do? Mm-hmm. How are we going to measure that? But then we have to accept the reality that it might not do that. And if it doesn't, we might have to pull that feature out. So you often hear product teams talk about taking features out of their product as an example mm-hmm. of the challenges here. How many product teams have ever removed a feature from their product? 
it's, I mean, that's a rhetorical question. You know? <laughs> you, we, we can't come up, but it's very few, you know, trust right. me, it's very few. So, so that's, I think, where build becomes really hard is just, is this really an experiment? Is there a possibility this will fail? How will I know if it's successful or not? What am I measuring to prove or disprove this hypothesis that I have? Mm. It, it is interesting because it comes from, it, it's a change in mindset, right? It's, there's this traditional sort of absolute way of building product that you're basically saying, okay, that's not the way things, things will work moving absolutely, forward. Absolutely. It is, it is a change in mindset. And, and I would say that people can start to wrap their brains around that, um, you know, I, I would say collectively teams may have a harder time with it. So an individual might say, I, I agree, this is the way we should do it. And where there are challenges is sometimes just conflict within product teams or companies, let's say, around, no, 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 we have to be absolutely sure this is going to work. Or, well, no, I'm just telling you it's going to work. And since I'm the boss, trust me, just build it, right? That sort of command and conquer approach to building product, mm -hmm. uh, I think, you know, some people can pull that off. Most of us are not Steve Jobs. And even, <laughs> and even let's, let's just be, you know, and even Steve Jobs, you know, didn't build everything on his own, right? So it's, it's really a change in mindset of sort of this bottom-up approach to things, this, hey, we think this is going to work. What's the minimum thing we have to build to, to, to prove or disprove this hypothesis that we have? Mm -hmm. What are we going to measure in order to do that? How quickly can we do that? And I think some people may look at that and say, well, that just sounds like a messier way of doing things. Um, you know, it just sounds like chaos to me. You know, as I say it, I'm like, wow, that sounds really chaotic. But, it, but it's not meant to be chaotic. And that's why Build, Measure, Learn is there and why Lean Analytics is there to guide you through that. So that there's no formula to success, but there's a methodology that you can work your way through in order to hopefully find success. Mm -hmm. Well, it's interesting. It brings me to my next question. So much of what you're talking about relies on, on critical thinking and in making sure that every member of the team really has that ability to think critically. Do you think that you can teach people critical thinking? Yes. I mean, I think you can, I think you can give people a framework by which they can um, execute against. Hmm. And even if, I, I think these things are, you know, these are situations where if you tell somebody this is the way you should do it, they may believe you, they may not believe you. If they try it and it works, then I think, you know, that's where the proof is in the pudding, right? And then they say, okay, I get it now. You know, instead of, you know, typically we would build something for three months, deliver it, and, you know, hope that it, it's going to do what, um, you know, the market wants. Now we build something in a week and we realize we were wrong and we saved, you know, hundreds, tens of thousands of dollars, millions of dollars. And so, and there's a number of examples like that out there. So I think you can teach critical thinking. You can give people steps um, that, again, they don't guarantee success. I think that's really important, you know. And um, I've seen examples of companies that have take, you know, gone through steps successfully, but 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 have still ultimately failed for other reasons. Because one, unfortunately or realistically, one problem begets another problem, mm -hmm. right? Like you don't get to solve one problem and then all retire. <laughs> Because you won. Like, there's no winning. You don't win like that here, right? It's just like, we solved this one problem. We did it faster and cheaper and better than we historically were able to do it. And guess what? That just leads to another problem. Mm -hmm. So I think it's about just giving people the tools and the framework and the way of thinking about it and trying to make it approachable so that it doesn't feel like, okay, I have to relearn everything or this is a, you know, I have to 
change the way my entire organization works. I think you can bite this off in, in reasonably small chunks to prove the efficacy of the model. Mm-hmm. Interesting. A certain kind of freedom that you're describing there, which sounds nice. Yeah, um, I think so. I, and, I, and that's why I used the words bottom up earlier. And, and I believe you know, product teams are successful when the ideas are coming from everybody. Um, and so, you know, I think the days of, you know, a senior, uh, whatever, I, I don't want to use titles because I don't want to, you know, throw anybody under the bus who might have this title, but, you know, the VP of product or director of product or CEO says, here's what we have to build. I know exactly what to build. Go build it. All I need you to do is ex- don't think, just execute. And uh, that's very hard to do. Mm-hmm. I don't think in the long run that's a scalable model. And I think what's more successful and that freedom that you described is, no, we all have ideas and all of them are valid as long as we don't you know, put a giant bet on any one of them. Let's test 10 ideas and see which you know, handful or less are actually material. So that's more of a bottom-up approach to building product than a top-down approach. Hmm. Interesting. So, so I've been I've been reading and listening to you online a bit over the last several months, and there are a couple of things that you've said or written that I want you to comment on. Uh, you note the importance of being intellectually honest with yourself as an entrepreneur, but you also note, and I think it's in the book as well, that we're all quote unquote we're all liars. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about what you mean by both these statements? Absolutely. So I think. Um, I'll start with we're all liars. And I, I say that almost every single time I present. And part of it is because it's kind of funny, but, but, or I like to think it is. Um, but, but part of it is because it's true. And, and often I'm speaking to entrepreneurs um, at where I think it's particularly true, founders of companies or entrepreneurs. And, and, and the reason is because I think you actually, as an entrepreneur, have to be a bit of a liar. So, and there's a number of reasons for that. One is you're, you're creating something that doesn't yet exist. And you're selling it, whether you're actually selling it or not, but you're, you have to convince others that your vision is real and important. And that might be for recruiting people, it might be users, it might be customers. So in many ways, you're saying, I believe this thing is, is true. I'm going to create something to solve this problem or realize this vision. You have to believe me. But, but let's all agree that we don't really know if the vision is true. And so there has to be a little, a little bit of lying there. It's a little bit, let's call it a little bit of sizzle, right, before the steak. <laughs> and, and so there's other ways of paraphrasing it. But that's, that's one reason. The other, I think, is that entrepreneurs need what I call sort of a reality distortion field. We need to surround ourselves, and I put myself in this bucket as an entrepreneur because it, being an entrepreneur is hard, and we've all heard that before, and it, it's 100% true. Early stage employee, I think I would put uh, into the same bucket, you know, first handful of employees, man, you, you get into an early stage company and all the risk is there. And so you have to sort of, you know, to get up every morning and fight the good fight for your, what you believe to be true and your vision that you're working towards achieving, you kind of have to surround yourself in this reality distortion field. Now, having said that, I think where the risk comes is when that reality distortion field gets so strong to the point where you're deluding yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, That's when, as an entrepreneur, you're running 100 miles an hour, you crash and you burn and you die. And and I actually think it, it's so so that's where intellectual honesty comes in and and frankly I you know we say this a lot about the the lean analytics book which is it's not about 
um, exclusively using data. It's not about being, you know, so wholly data driven that you ignore your gut or insights or, or anything else. It's just about poking holes in that reality distortion field. So you don't crash, burn and die. And I, I would say another way of thinking about this is ego. Entrepreneurs need ego in order to survive. I, I believe that to be true. Uh, but you have so much, you know, when you, when your ego is so big or so strong or so overpowering that you stop listening to other people, you stop recognizing when you're making mistakes, um, then you're, you're going to fail. Mm-hmm. And so there's a balance there between this, you know, we're all liars, reality distortion field and intellectual honesty, which I believe is just so important for entrepreneurs because it's just so easy to delude ourselves into believing things that are ultimately not true. Mm-hmm. Right. Makes sense. I mean, you need that ego, but you need you need to check yourself or you need to make sure yeah. you're around people who are checking. Absolutely. I think entrepreneurs, they need the ego. You need to have a strong vision for what you're trying to accomplish. You have to be able to get up in front of people and, you know, fake it till you make it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that that's all 100% true. Having said that, when that goes too far, uh, then you are doomed to failure. You may not realize it, you know, at that moment in time, but but I guarantee or almost guarantee that you're going to fail. And so for me, lean startup, um, you know, applying lean principles and analytics to product, thinking about new ways of developing product. It's all about just not not saying, hey, don't listen to your gut. Don't be rah rah about this. Don't have a vision. It's about just being intellectually honest enough with yourself to say. This isn't working. What we're doing is not working. We can pretend all we want. It's not working. We need, we need to do something else. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay, thank you. Um, in your book, you talk about one metric that matters. Can you talk a little bit about what this means? Sure. Um, it, it's a fairly significant, I, I would say, idea in the book. And you know, the, the basic principle is that at any given point in time, there's a single metric that you can track as a company, as a, as a team, um, that matters to to you and to the business. And so now I, I would say after you know writing the book and, and speaking to many, many entrepreneurs and, and designers and product people and everybody, sort of big companies, small companies, I would say the one metric that matters is uh, both true, but also a concept to help you simplify the data that you're tracking. So I, there's not a single company in the world that literally tracks only one metric, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I think we all we all understand that that's that's the case. Having said that, um, there's too many companies that track hundreds of metrics, and then what happens is they get sort of into this analysis paralysis where they don't know what they should be tracking, so they track everything. They don't know how to interpret the data, so they get stuck. Um, so the one metric that matters is is an attempt to say, hey. Understand what stage you're at with your business or your product. Understand um, the business that you're in, your business model. Combine those things together and find the single metric that matters right now. And really, it's the single metric that will help you understand whether your number one problem that you have is actually being solved or not. So this really goes back to, well, what is the number one problem you have right now? And actually understanding that and, and frankly, being intellectually honest about that because a lot of people will not be honest about that. Uh, But at the same time, it's not to say, okay, there's literally only one number on the dashboard, but maybe there shouldn't be 50 numbers, maybe 10. Um, And and over time, I think as as businesses evolve and mature and grow, 
you will have a one metric that matters as a health indicator for the business. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of, you know, if I use an example like a, a B2B SaaS company, that'll often be something like MRR, monthly recurring revenue. So that's kind of the big number. We're all responsible for growing MRR. But here I am, I'm a, I'm a product designer on a, on a specific team. How am I moving the needle on MRR? Well, I'm building a feature right now, and the one metric that matters for that feature is to increase engagement. Because I believe that increasing engagement will lower churn, and if I lower churn, that's going to increase MRR. So it becomes this um, sort of daisy chain of metrics, or actually one way of thinking about it is like a layer cake. And so I might be working on a very specific feature. That feature has a one metric that matters to to demonstrate if that feature is creating value to Mm -hmm. my users or customers. That then is going to level up, if you will, to, you know, the next layer of the cake, which is, you know, well, engagement's increased. Does that have an impact on MRR or not? Because that's the health indicator for the business. So there can be ultimately what I'm, you know, I think what it comes down to is there could be multiple one metrics that matter, which is why I say it's like... (laughs) Conceptually, I think it's important to understand focus, mm-hmm. not literally like, okay, scrap all our metrics and only pick one. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So are there times where the focus shouldn't be on, on metrics, where you should ignore the metrics? Um, no, I don't think so. Uh, but I, I, I will say this, and I say this to, again, you know, whenever I'm talking to people about lean analytics and they ask me, you know, something like that, or they'll ask, um, you know, Often entrepreneurs will ask me things like, well, should I just completely ignore my gut? And I'm like, no, <laughs> no, <laughs> that's, that's crazy. So, so, you know, there's this idea of what we call qualitative metrics. And that's really about collecting feedback and input from the market, you know, usually users and customers. Um, and some of that can be quantified, like a net promoter score, for example. Mm-hmm. It's a way of quantifying or attempting to quantify people's qualitative feelings towards your product or business. But I I always tell people, please never stop talking to customers. And you see this a lot more than you might realize. Um, You know, early on, you know, Lean Startup, if we go back, tells us do problem interviews, get out of the building, right? We've heard that kind of advice. Um, You know, there's no answers inside the room. You got to go talk to customers or users. So, So you do that, you get some validation that you're on the right track, you build your product, you release it, and now it's all data, right? Because you can finally collect data, and you stop talking to customers. And of course, that's crazy. <laughs> and so I think it's a balance, just like we're all liars and intellectual honesty. <laughs> There's a balance here between quantitative information and qualitative information. And so you need to be able to get the data that tells you what is going on. Oh, people are not using this feature, or people are doing this thing that I didn't expect them. You need to then go talk to people to figure out the why, because the data won't tell you the why; it will only tell you the what. Hmm. That's interesting. So it's a combination. It is. It, like you know, it's funny because um, oftentimes you get questions from people, and uh, and the answer is it depends, <laughs> right? Because it can be very specific to a certain company or a certain uh, situation, a certain case, and and but like this is a great example of a question where there's no absolute answer it's guess what it's messy and it's complicated and that's called re- that's what real life is like mm-hmm. right there, there's literally no formula for this so you have to combine these things and and you know you go too much into the data and you'll you'll just overanalyze yourself to death you don't have any data and you say well trust me i talked to some customers no that tr- trust me you didn't you you <laughs> just you just don't want to do the hard work and you'd rather just guess 
Mm. So again, it's these things are in my mind. It's always a healthy balance. Mm-hmm. It is. It's interesting that you say it. It's hard work, and you just have to keep at it. Yeah, and you know, there is no formula. Lean startup is not a, a formula for success. It's, I think, a better methodology towards success mm-hmm. versus you know just assuming you have all the answers in your brain and you're you're perfect. Uh, you know, so but it's not a guarantee. Right there, there just are no guarantees. There are just too many variables when you're starting a company, or or b- even not like building a product. There are too many variables there to really say, oh, step one, then step two, then step three, step four, win. Right. Right. Now we can do step one, step two, step three, step four. What we can't guarantee is winning at the end. Mm-hmm. Right. Otherwise, everybody would be successful. Everybody. <laughs> yeah, I, I would be on an island. I would own the <laughs> island. You know. So, so it, yeah, it turns out it's hard work. It turns out it's messy. It turns out there's no perfect answers. Um, you can't ignore your gut. I mean, I, you know, I'll, I'll give you, you know, a, a quick example. I've been um, working on some of my own startup ideas. And, you know, one of them is in the parenting space. And so I'm like, well, before I build anything, been there, done that, you know, made that mistake before of building stuff without talking to people, I'm going to go interview some parents. So off I go, I schedule eight interviews, I talk to the parents and, you know, having done this a number of times, I have good questions or what I think are good questions. I've structured my problem interviews effectively. And I, you know, hundred percent, honestly, I don't get the answers I want. I learn something important. I learn some, I get some insights out of it. I don't hear what I want. So mm-hmm. what's my, of course, so two reactions from that. One is, well, I'm still right because my idea is awesome, <laughs> right? So a hundred percent, just like pure ego driven, like these, these eight people were clearly wrong and I'm clearly right. But I also stopped, right? Like I, I didn't go and find a develop, you know, development team to go build this idea that I have. I, I stopped myself. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's what it's like. That's the messiness of it. You know, it just, yeah, I still think this idea is good, but I intellectually and honestly know after talking to eight people that I'm missing the mark somewhere. Mm-hmm. So back to the drawing board before I keep investing in this thing and, and wasting time and money. That's interesting. Yeah, you're learning. It's um, that's, that's the whole point, right? Yeah, yeah. It is interesting, though, when that happens. I've been in that situation, too. And you're like, huh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, again, like I, 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 I listen to them, the interviews. I'm like, I'm taking the notes down. I'm like, fantastic. They're telling me things I hadn't thought of. So I'm learning stuff. And that's great. And maybe that helps me pivot or navigate my way to newer ideas around the same problem space. But I swear, I, I got off the phone. I talked to this, this friend of mine who I've been you know, bouncing these ideas around with. I'm like, look, man, I spoke to eight people. I'm not getting the feedback. Let me show you the interview questions. I'm like, but I still think this is awesome. I'm like, okay, like, that's, you know, that's all well and good. But like, are you going to go and, and build it now? And, and so many companies, of course, make that mistake. Right. Say, oh, well, yeah, I'm just going to go build it. Right. And, wrong eight people. Right? <laughs> yeah, wrong, yeah, clearly the wrong eight people. You know? and, and to some extent, maybe some of them were wrong. Mm. Right. But um, no, I learned something. I got to go back to the drawing board. I got. I have to change the idea, change the pitch a little bit, and, and go talk to eight more people. It doesn't. But and part of that is it's not that hard. You know, that was eight people. That took me, you know, some total ten hours of work. Um, imagine what it would have cost me to, you know, start that company and and build that product. Mm, right. You know, so I, I've saved myself. Now I also haven't found the answer. But I save myself what I would, uh, what I suspect is a, a world of hurt. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So one of the other hats you wear is angel investor. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about what you look for when you're investing in other companies? 
Sure. Uh, you know, for me, um, it's been a combination of things over the years. So I started angel investing in uh, tw- uh, end of 2013, I guess, so about three years or so. And you know, the first few investments, honestly, were people I knew very well, uh, people that I trusted, uh, people that I always felt like, hey, I would, you know, someday if if the opportunity arose to work with these people or co-found businesses with them, I would I would do that. And so that, that it was those were fairly easy decisions for me. Mm-hmm. because you're betting on the people. And of course, I think you, you realize that you never stop betting on the people, but just those people I knew better. So it was easier to make those bets. I think over time, the people still at the end of the day are fundamental because you could have a great... I, I, I've seen things where... Uh, I mean, look, I, honestly, like I've invested in... I've made these mistakes. You know, Great idea, great market... I know something about the space, so I feel like I can add value. You make that investment, and you realize the people are wrong. Mm. And but now you're stuck, right? Because like you can't, can't you, you know, very hard to get rid of the people. <laughs> Much easier to change the idea, right? <laughs> so, so I think you know, at the end of the day, for me, it, it, and, and it's a little bit cliche, and I think a lot of investors will say this, but it really is about: Do I believe these people have the founders have what it takes to build a successful company? Now. I, I won't necessarily, as an angel, say a giant company. I don't necessarily always invest and say, oh, you know, like a VC who says, well, everything I invest in has to be, you know, a hundred million plus billion dollar business, um, even though, you know, they're wrong, you know, let's say nine out of 10 times. And that's just the way that model works. I think for angels, that model can be a little bit different. Mm-hmm. We can still um, find a way for that to be, you know, rewarding even if it's an earlier exit. Um, it's, just, it's just the way that the, sort of the mechanics work. But for me, it's people. Um, lately, I th- you know, over time, um, you know, so the people, the market, of course, matters. But I think early on, um, markets are not always clear. You know, who is the customer? What's the real market? You know, you'll often see, you know, if you've ever seen um, startups pitch, let's say on stage, for example, at an event, mm-hmm. and, and they'll always have a market slide. And the market slide will say the total addressable market is, you know, Five hundred bazillion dollars and growing at twenty percent, and it's like, well, that that's just like the market for all software, you know? Like it's not it's not the real market, right? Um, so I think I think market is important, but um, but less so because I think you can you can adapt markets, markets grow over time, markets change. So for me, it's people, and 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 generally, I think it's also for me personally, like, are they working on something that I find interesting? Mm-hmm. So I have to I have to be sort of personally interested in what they're doing and excited by what they're doing, and I think that that's um, you know over time that's become more relevant for me. And you know I've I, my last two investments in particular were in areas that I think if those companies are successful, they will genuinely make a dent in the universe. And, and by that I mean like help people. Mm. And not all companies are designed to do that, right? I mean you can always navigate your way to say, well, you know we sell software to a company and that helps that company be more successful and that keeps people in jobs. And so you can always argue your way to <laughs> helping the world be a better place. And, but, but I mean like really make a dent in the universe. Mm-hmm. And so, so I think not, not because it's just about being altruistic necessarily. It's just about, I think that there's a way that you can combine, you know, great people with these markets where if you can do something in them, it's actually going to help the world. Mm. And and that that interests me a lot um, lately. I just I think about that a lot, and I'm like, you know, even if this company is worth a billion dollars, will like will anybody care? 
you know, and, and, and I'd like there to be some purpose, some higher purpose mm -hmm. with, without, without being too, you know, not, not holier than thou, not, <laughs> not saying, oh, you know, like I'm only investing in companies that are trying to cure cancer, like it, within reason, but, uh, you know, some purpose that matters. Mm -hmm. Right. Not just selling more stuff. Not just selling more stuff, you know, and, and I think, um, I, you know, I, I just, for me that I didn't necessarily have that as a criteria earlier on. I think it's become more of a criteria for me now. Um, it just speaks to the things that I'm interested in. So again, you know, stuff I'm interested. So I, I might see great people, great business, but not have any real interest in it. I think it, it gets harder and harder to invest in those things as a, as an individual. If you're running a fund or or you have more resources, capital to deploy, you're going to make more bets. That's different, you mm -hmm. know. But um, you know, for somebody like myself who who makes you know, relatively speaking, you know, fewer investments. Um, Feeling that connection to what they're trying to do, I think, is is really important. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. Um, so, talk to me about the class that you're teaching in June on product strategy. Talk about uh, who it's for and what students should expect to learn at the class. Sure. It's funny, even the word students. That makes me really feel like the teacher. Attendee uh, students. <laughs> <laughs> can, we, can we say participants? Sure. Like, <laughs> You know, it's only it's it's a you know it's a one day thing. So I you know I hope to make it as participatory as I can. But you know it's certainly challenging. But I it's it's just a funny thing. Like think of me at the front of the room. Like <laughs> anyway, um, my mom was a teacher. So oh okay, and my dad. So there you go. But um, so it, it's a class on product strategy for designers. And you know I think when we unpack that, there's a, it means a number of things. Uh, but for me, um, you know, m the last two roles that I've had at um, technology startup companies has been as VP of product. And um, I've been in, you know, I've started companies, I've invested in companies, I've run product teams. And it's an interesting and again, you know, messy area. Product is a messy area. What is a product manager even? Um, at every company, when you talk to them, they're different. They have, you know, it's not... It's not like developer. We know what a developer does, mm -hmm. uh, and it's super important. Product manager somehow, or even how we build product, changes company to company. And there's obviously some similarities, but that to me is, is pretty interesting. Um, and I've seen it at a bunch of companies that I've been involved in. And, and so for me, this is about helping uh, product designers understand the different approaches to building products. And hopefully relating that to the experiences that they're having at the organizations where they work, whether it's large companies, small companies, whether they're entrepreneurs themselves with a, you know, like designer founders, which is a, which is awesome if they are, because mm -hmm. uh, there aren't enough designer founders. That's a, that's a whole other rant. Uh, <laughs> but usually we say like business person and developer. And I think design is just so important in that equation. User experience is so important in that equation. So for me, it's about how product teams function, how they build stuff. And then if you go a level up from there, so that's a little bit the weeds, right? The feature prioritization, the what do we track metrics-wise? Um, how do we know if this feature is really moving the needle? But if you go a level above that, you have to say, just like there's a layer cake for the one metric that matters, there's a layer cake of value creation. So me as a product designer, how do I understand the value that I create designing this landing page, designing this product feature for the business. Well, what is this business in the first place? What's our business model? How does the business operate? 
And um, so I think it's important for everybody at a company to understand how a business functions and operates and how it makes decisions so that I can tie my work day in, day out um, and the value that I'm creating to the value for the whole company so, so, so I can really understand that chain. Um, so we're going to cover things like business models. Um, and that sounds maybe a little, you know, on the outset can sound pretty easy, like, well, my company builds a widget and we sell a widget. But there's just so much more to business models than that. And a customer or a user's experience, you know, the minute they sort of start with us to, to the end. Mm-hmm. And so there's just some really interesting, that's just, how does this business function? How does it make money? How do users experience the product or the services? Um, so that's sort of understanding businesses, understanding things like pricing, understanding just the whole ecosystem of what has to happen for a business to function and be successful, and then try to bring that down to, well, my job as a designer and how that relates to product teams. Because nobody in a company works in isolation. Mm-hmm. Right? So, so you know, product designer has to work with a product manager, has to work with a developer, has to work with customer support, has to work with sales. So how do these things tie together so I have a better understanding of how product gets built so I can provide more input and insight into that and, and increase the value of the work that I'm producing for that company? That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, it's interesting too, as I, I've mentioned to you, I, I keep hearing over and over again the questions that you plan to address in your class uh, from designers who who find themselves in a position where they they really want to know how what they're doing impacts the bigger picture and informs can inform some of their their own decisions with their their design work. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's this is not an easy thing for companies, I think, to accomplish, which is, you know, can I take every single person in my organization and map what they do, you know, physically, the work that they output to value for the company on a whole, mm-hmm. right? At a, at a, can we go from the macro level of, you know, MRR as an example, monthly recurring revenue, sales, let's say, can we, can we go from the macro level there down to the, you know, I wrote this line of code. Mm-hmm. It's really hard to do, right? And it's not, it's not always obvious where that value creation is. And let's be you know, honest about it. Sometimes it, there isn't value creation. It's just work for the sake of work. So the more that we can tie those things together and help everybody, and in this case, it's product designers, but you know, certainly for developers, for product managers, for sales, for everybody to understand, you know, A, how the other people in the company function and maybe the way they think and how they attack problems could be a little bit different than, you know, the mindset of a product designer. But then how do we tie all of that together so that we're being honest with ourselves about the value creation? And if it's not where we want it to be, how do we fix that? Mm -hmm. How do we make sure that each person is producing, you know, not maybe minute to minute, let's not get crazy. But, you know, generally speaking, how are they moving the needle for the company? And if we can tie that together, I don't know, in my mind, I've always felt like wherever I've worked, if the work I was doing, if I couldn't figure out where the value was, then I, I, I lost interest very quickly. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, so, and I think that's important for companies to understand. Like if you have people working there and they're building something and they don't really know why they're doing it, then, then they're going to lose interest and they're going to leave. So there's like macro level issues here. But specifically for product designers, I think it's an interesting place. They're so, I, I, you know, I mean, in my opinion anyway, incredibly important. Um, you know, very little can go out to the market without a designer having 
touched it and, mm-hmm. and participated in the experience. But I think they often get pigeonholed in places that diminishes the value that they're actually creating. And so if we can open that up and say, hey, now, you know, product designer, you now know maybe a little bit or you can think a little bit more strategically about how this business functions and bring more value to the table as a result of that, I think that would be a huge win. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Good stuff. Um, one one final question. Beyond your own investments, are there people or projects that are grabbing your your eyeballs these days? Yeah, I think, I mean, there's a, there's there's so much going on, you know. And so, you know, the things that are hot these days, I think, um, you know, m- industries in tech get hot and then there's like a little backlash. Like, so, you know, Facebook had their conference, the right. conference, and, um, you know, a lot of it was bots, bots, bots. <laughs> and then of course, when this airs, it'll be a little bit later, but you know, now there's all the articles that are like, Oh my God, bots, 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 you know, it's like, <laughs> so it's like, okay guys, like, look, can we all just calm down? Like nobody knows the ultimately, or maybe somebody does, but I certainly don't know the ultimate you know, value, uh, where it's going to be. I think it's interesting. I think there's some cool stuff going on. Does the tech industry on a whole get a little bit crazy and, you know, <laughs> go up like, okay, bots are going to change the world. And then six months from now, I'll be like, okay, bots are stupid. I, I, I probably, that's probably <laughs> how it'll go. Let's be honest. Um, but will there be some material value that comes out of that? Of course. It's just, you know, the hype cycle gets a little crazy, you know? Mm. So I, but I, I think I think that's an area that's I think interesting. You know, the I mean, frankly, it's interesting in a number of ways. And I think for product designers, it's actually super interesting because you know, apps. You know, it was all so so much about the aesthetic. You mm. know, the design, the brand, so important. And I think they are important. Bots. It's like, oh, now I'm communicating with a company through SMS. Well, where where what happened to the brand? Where's the brand in an SMS? Mm. Where's the brand inside Facebook Messenger other than Facebook Messenger's brand, right? Where's the stylistic design? Like there's no there's no UI anymore almost. So I mean that to me for product designers is super fascinating, um, but also for companies. You know, is that just a channel? Is it, you know, can you build an entire business off of that? So that's, I think that's one area that's interesting for me. I think the other one that's interesting for me um, is around you know, and I think that this is a buzzword I really hate using, but corporate innovation. And, and, and I say that more because, you know, we know, um, you know, big companies, uh, you know, when we look at the data and the, uh, the biggest companies in the world are struggling more than ever before, and they're being attacked by startups from all over the place and startups are growing super quickly, you know, how can big companies actually innovate and disrupt themselves, I think is, is interesting. And we're seeing lots and lots of noise in that space, lots and lots of interesting stuff in that space. And that's very broad. But I think big companies have some material advantages over, over startups. And if they can figure out how to create startups and leverage the distribution and, and the stuff that they have, they could do some really amazing things. Mm. And that I think is just interesting for me overall when I look at an ecosystem and say, you know, do I want to kill big company X or do I want to figure out how to help them disrupt themselves because they know they have to in order to survive? I mean, those are pretty big questions, but I think that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, this has been an absolute pleasure. Ben, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, thank you for having me. You can reach Ben through his Twitter handle at BYosco. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the O'Reilly Design Podcast through iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or TuneIn so you never miss an episode. <laughs>